I want to share on a topic this morning. Um, it's a topic that, that has come from this pulpit a couple of times. It's, it's the, concept of, the concept of dualistic thinking. And, and dualistic thinking is, you know, I think for a lot of us, it's, it's where we start the journey to spirituality. I know as being raised in a th- Southern Baptist church, uh, that's a very definite place that, uh, that my journey started. Dualistic thinking is the need to put everything in boxes, right, wrong, good, bad, black, white, and not only put them in boxes, but very rigidly built boxes. I have a very clear sense of uh, what is right. I have a very clear sense of what is wrong. I, a matter of fact, it is so clear that anything outside of that is threatening. Anything outside of that, you know, I feel the need to defend anything outside of that, uh, and I feel compromised. So, you know, two, three years ago, uh, I was exposed to this concept, and it, it triggered some deep thoughts. You know, it, it triggered a a deep introspection of trying to understand where I was still at in this process, how much it still controlled me, how much it still owned me, whether or not the concept itself was spiritual. You know, did I, did I see examples of it uh, in the Scripture? Did I see examples of it in Jesus and, uh, you know, and in the path out? And uh, so anyway, I, I want to explore this a little bit this morning. And... Um, you know, I was, I was trying to think of a way to make sure that I had everybody's attention. So here it is. Um, is sin part of God's plan for my life? Now, that should make sure that I have everyone's attention. Half the group is hoping that, that I'm going to give them a loophole, and the other half of the group is uh, the hair is rising up on the back of their necks, you know, as they think about defending their own position. So so just hold on to that for a little bit, and, and we'll explore it. But here is, uh, this is something that I wrote in my phone, uh, and I wrote it, like I say, about two, three years ago, and uh, I jotted it in the notes section of my phone. Uh, and it was me just kind of exploring. I, I was beginning to see a sense of, of this subject, and it was me exploring it a little bit. Every sermon I hear and every book I read leads me in the wrong direction. It accentuates and appeals to the intellectual side of my spiritual pursuit. It allows me to equate spirituality with knowledge and right thinking. It allows me to feel spiritual based on a set of beliefs that reside only between my ears and never see the light of day. It feeds my ego to the degree that it allows me to feel that I am mastering this subject and gaining control of it. Worship music probably is the more direct route to God. It's more experiential and less intellectual. So it allows me to embrace the mystery and just feel the awe of the relationship. It takes me to a quiet place where I am seeking the connection of the relationship with God. The spiritual journey is actually an experiential journey more than an intellectual journey. The path is about relationship with God and with others. We are on the path when we are in relationship and practicing relationship. But here's the rub. The sermon and the book have a definite place in the journey. It's hard to grow without being exposed to new ideas and a better sense of what I'm pursuing. I need to hear truth and see new concepts so that I can grow my experience. 
non-dualistic thinking is that that sense of both sides play a role, both sides have a path, both sides contribute to the journey, uh, both sides are necessary in their own way. And so, you know, what I was expressing here, what I was trying to explore within my own mind and my own heart was, can I, can I accept that both of these are part of the path to the truth uh, and not feel the need to cast them as right, wrong, good, bad, black, white? Can I not try to level a judgment on them or, or place a value on them that, that has to put them in a rigidly built box? Um, I want to read something. Uh, this is just a, a one-page little treatise. Um, it's a, a fellow talking about dual thinking, dualistic thinking. And it's him exploring the, not only the concept, but what is dangerous about the concept? What is it? Why is it that I, I need to be aware of it and, um, you know, and look for a path through it? Dual thinking, as I understand it, is the idea that something has to be either or, that it's either good or bad, right or wrong. Here's another way of describing it. The concept of up and down seems to make sense from an earthly or gravitational perspective. But if you're somewhere out in space, it suddenly makes no sense at all. There is no up or down. The list of these polar opposites goes on and on, but they all have one thing in common. They're often laced with judgment and the need for resolution. I find myself doing it all the time, making judgments or assumptions about people I come into contact with on a daily basis. The waiter who doesn't treat me as I deserve to be treated. The inconsiderate driver who cuts me off in traffic. The rude person on the phone that is completely unreasonable. My wife, who has her own way of navigating through life. Why don't they see things my way, the way things really are? The fact is that dual thinking has become integrated in how I process things, and it's rooted in fear. Fear of what I don't know, a fear of what I don't understand, and fear of what I can't control, a feeling of lack. Being right seems to quiet the screaming monkeys, at least temporarily. And when I think in black and white, I miss all the shades of gray in between. Someone has to be wrong for me to be right. My relationships have suffered because they're stuck in defending a position mode. I'm so concerned about being right, of making sure that my viewpoint is heard, that I miss all the magic, learning, wisdom, and connection that are waiting to be discovered. And if my relationships are based in this either-or way of thinking, is it any wonder that I continue to feel separate and isolated from myself and others? How can dual thinking represent truth when something can be right for one person but wrong for another? You know, the two things that, that come to me from that is this. When I am stuck in that mode, when I am stuck in that needing to protect my idea of right and wrong, I lose the ability to learn. I lose the ability to grow. I lose the ability to, uh, to find a new truth or a new reality. A new, I lose the ability to, uh, to come to life from a different point of view or a different place um, 
or grow because I'm so busy defending what it is that I've already chosen to believe that I have no room for anything new. I need to I need to find a way. You know, I guess the way I'd put it is in the past I held my theology very tightly. Um, I held my spiritual viewpoints very tightly, my understanding of God very tightly. You know, I was very sure of what I believed and I guarded and protected that very tightly. Today it's it's more like I hold it. There is truth. I have truth. I know what I believe. I know why I believe it. And yet, what I've come to, to see and experience is that my relationship with God, my understanding of God, my understanding of spirituality continues to grow and develop as I walk through life. It continues to change. My sense of who He is, how He relates to me, how He touches me, continues to change and morph and grow. And I see it from different perspectives. I see it in different perspectives. And if this is true, then I don't need to be so jealously guarding and protecting the idea of truth that I currently have as I do need to recognize that it is my truth for now and I still have the ability to explore other avenues, consider other avenues, and see where it takes me. So, you know, I want to do something. I I think this is kind of fun. Um, Actually, first, I put a picture at the bottom of the uh, bulletin sheet. I put a picture of a scale. And actually, Dave decided to upgrade my scale and and make it a little more visually appealing, which is fine. (laughs) But this was the scale that I actually, you know, had, had placed in the bulletin. You know, it, and it's, it's stark and, and it's, yes, it's, it's not visually appealing. But, you know, the idea here with, with non-dual thinking is that both sides play a part. Both, both sides play a role. A balanced scale recognizes that there's, there's, there's the need for both ends of the spectrum to be there and be balanced in order to be correct. But there's a twofold reason for the scale. The second one is this. The scale operates on a balance point. The balance point is this point right in the middle. This is what it weighs everything against, okay? It weighs everything against this point in the middle. So good, bad, right, wrong, healthy, unhealthy, harmful, hurtful, everything gets weighed against this. And here's the rub. Here's the, uh, the challenge you know, when I started life, I was very definitely the center point of my scale, the balance point of the scale. Everything, you know, as a child growing up, everything got measured against whether this helps me or hurts me. You know, does this feel good or feel bad? Does this make me happy or make me sad? You know, I am the center point of my scale, and everything is getting measured based on how it reflects on me, how it helps me or hurts me, what it does for me. You know, the, the difficulty is as I move through life and especially as I get past those early childhood stages and start to consider spiritual truths, philosophical truths, life truths, you know, does this balance point of my scale change? 
or am I still at the center of the balance point? Am I still weighing everything about how it reflects on me, or is there someone else, something else, at the balance point of my scale? So, in, uh, in an attempt to stretch our minds a little bit and, uh, and maybe loosen our thinking, here's, uh, here's some quotes from some authors and some scripture that I want you to uh, consider. And the first one's George Carlin, so... Yeah, I actually found something of George Carlin that I could read in church. George Carlin said, if you try to fail but succeed, which have you done? Mahatma Gandhi said, whatever you do will be insignificant, but it's very important that you do it. George Bernard Shaw said, there are two tragedies in life. One is to lose your heart's desire. The other is to find it. Plato said, I am the wisest man alive, for I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing. Carl Rogers said, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. Albert Einstein said, life is a preparation for the future, and the best preparation for the future is to live as if there were none. And here's one that I just think we all need to take to our spiritual journey. Rita Mae Brown said, good judgment comes from experience. And experience comes from bad judgment. (laughs) Rob Bell said, you're always a disciple slash student in this life. Failure shapes and grows me. Suffering shapes and grows me. So... Failure isn't failure, it's growth. Richard Rohr, a couple of quotes from his book, Everything Belongs. The great and merciful surprise is that we come to God not by doing it right, but by doing it wrong. And the second quote is, God is most easily lost being thought found. Then here's some scriptures to consider. Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. So, I'm not to think. I'm not to use my own understanding. I'm just to trust God. Romans 8, 28 says, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It's still hard for me to uh, embrace the pain the challenges, the difficulty of life. Second Corinthians twelve nine. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Matthew twenty sixteen. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I don't even know how to use this. You know, when I get to heaven, I really want to hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. So how do I use this verse to set myself up to be there? I make sure I'm at the back of the line. 1 Corinthians 3.19 If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. 
And then from 1 Timothy, and this is just one of my most favorite verses. Um, and this is, this is Paul talking, and he's talking about his own journey. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. You know, the whole point and purpose and, and desire to read those is just to, to kind of loosen up our thinking, to loosen up our grip on, you know, right and wrong and the need to defend it, the, 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 the need to, uh, to take this spiritual journey and be so judgmental, not only of others, but of myself, you know, in, in building these walls around what I consider to be right in living in guilt when I perceive that I haven't done it well or correctly, in being frustrated with myself or others um, when, I, when I'm not satisfied with the result. So here you go. Let's, let's take a little run at this. Sin versus righteousness. You know, I, I kind of started there. Yeah, is the goal to eliminate sin, the goal of the spiritual journey, is the goal of the spiritual journey to eliminate sin? Would I be better off with no sin? Um, or is sin a critical part of the spiritual journey? Is sin part of God's plan for my life? God, I just can't wrap my head around that. You know, it, it's hard for me to sit up here and say, yes, but would I be humble without sin? Would I need God's grace without sin? Would I be tolerant and loving of other human beings without sin? You see, in, in, the, in the balancing of the scales, the sin is what makes me aware of God in the first place. The sin is what makes me aware of my need for Him. The sin is what keeps me coming back to Him. The sin is what keeps me looking to him for his grace and his mercy and his strength to continue to do life well. Paul spoke to this. In Romans chapter 5, at the end of the chapter, Paul is talking about how sin leads to God's grace. How, how the sin in our life is what actually accentuates God's grace in our life. And as soon as he makes that point, and I don't know why they put a chapter division here, but from the end of chapter 5, where he's speaking to this, to the first verse in chapter 6, he says in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. You know, I can't validate sin. I, I can't accept it lightly as a part of my life. And yet, I have to recognize that it plays a role. I have to recognize that it's what keeps me humble and teachable and open and willing to grow and willing to learn and seeking and trying to find a stronger connection with God and trying to find His face a little more clearly in my life. It has a place. It has a role. Um, it's not a place that I want to live. It's not a, you know, it's, it's something that I want to continue to try to move from. And yet, 
I'll never get there. I'll never get to perfection. Um, but I do want to remain teachable. I do want to remain open. I do want to remain needing of His grace and His mercy. Here's another consideration from Scripture. The story of Mary and Martha. Um, you know, and Meister Eckhart, when he was up here a few weeks ago, you know, spoke to this a little bit. But in the story of Mary and Martha, you know, they've got visitors in the house. And, uh, you know, Jesus and his disciples are in Mary and Martha's house. And so Martha's running around fixing the food and making sure all the guests are taken care of and, and doing everything necessary when you've got a house full of guests. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and uh, and letting him teach her. And, you know, of course, there comes that frustration point when Martha comes up to Jesus and says, Master, would you please tell my sister, you know, to come help me, you know, with with all the preparations. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you know, Mary has chosen what is best and it will not be taken from her. You know, so my tendency, if I'm still in this black-white mode, my tendency is to come at this and say, okay, Mary's got it right, Martha's got it wrong. So I want to practice this behavior. I want to make sure that I shun this behavior. Um, you know, so what is, what's the path? You know, and yet, if I look at this, I've never really figured out how to go through life as Martha, as Mary. I, I can't spend all of my time at Jesus' feet. I'd love to, but I can't spend all my time there. You know, I can't pay the bills. I can't support myself. I can't put food on the table. I can't spend all my time sitting at Jesus' feet. Yes, that's the better way. Yes, that has got to be a part of my life. Yes, that's got to be part of my journey. You know, but so does productivity. So there's a balancing of the scales. There's a realization that it's both and. Both are necessary to get me there. I can't do one without the other. You know, this is the better way. This cannot disappear from my life, um, you know, but I don't want to, I don't want to land on just one end of the scale, you know, and then here's a, here's a favorite of mine. It, it's a story that we all uh, come to a lot in church, the story of the prodigal son. Uh, and I'm sure most everybody in here knows the story of the prodigal son, but you know, Father had two sons. The younger son comes and demands his share of the inheritance, runs off and squanders, you know, all of it on riotous living uh, until the point where he's living with the pigs and, and finally decides to come home to dad and just throw himself at his mercy and say, let me just be one of your servants, you know, because your servants have it better than I have it right now. And he comes back and, of course, the father just runs to meet him, throws his arms around him, you know, puts on, you know, a big party, kills a fatted calf, so on and so forth. The older son is out in the fields. He's been working all day. He's hot, tired, sweaty. You know, this is the story of his life. You know, he has been there, part of the family, served his father faithfully from the beginning. And as he's coming home, he hears the sound of the party and asks the servant what's going on. And he gets told, uh, you know, your little brother came home, you know, and, and dad's throwing him a party. And he loses it, you know. And he can't bring himself to go into the house. 
and he's irritated and he's angry and he's frustrated. And dad comes out to try and bring him in. And he's like, I've served you my whole life. I've done everything you ever asked me to do. You know, I have been the good kid, you know, and you never threw a party for me. You never killed a fatted calf, you know, and dad's trying to reason with him. Dad's trying, you know, and this is God, the father. This is the way we're to understand this story. You know, this is, you know, we, we had to throw this party. Your, your brother was dead and he's alive. So we look at the story and I say, okay, good and bad, right and wrong. You know, you know, I, I don't want to be like the older brother. The older brother obviously is wrong in this case. The older brother got it wrong. So am I to shun that behavior? Is, is this a bad example? You know, am I to look at this and say, don't live this way? father obviously didn't have a problem with the older son. You know, the father was in love with him. The father was thankful for him. The father said, all that I have is yours. All that I have always will be yours. You know, the father was in complete support of the older son. Did the older son handle this situation as best he could? Probably not. You know, I don't know that I would have handled it any better hot and tired and sweaty from a long day in the fields and come home and, and dad's throwing a party for the, the younger brother that squandered half the family inheritance. I don't know I would have handled it any better. But I can't just go through and label this as right, wrong, good, bad, you know, and try to find the, uh, the unworthiness in this situation. The older brother was a great son. The older brother actually handled life in the better fashion, you know, he was there for dad all the way through. He was part of the family all the way through, you know, but I can learn from his mistake in this, in this situation, he handled this poorly. Oh, and then here's a good one. When Mary poured the, uh, the perfume on Jesus' head, you know, and the disciples got all upset about it. Um, you know, they, they started arguing about the price of the perfume. It could have been sold. The money could have been given to the poor. And Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you. How many of us could follow a pastor that, that said that to us? You will always have the poor with you. It's okay. Give me some great gifts, you know. And if you don't have a problem with that, then I could use some great gifts. But, uh... But, you know, I don't think that we always take this and let it sink in and, and, and see it all the way down deep inside. These are, these are amazing words coming out of Jesus' mouth. You will always have the poor with you, but you'll not always have me with you. You know, and it's true, and it's very true. And he was worthy of celebration, and we want to celebrate him and everything else. But it was, it's unusual. I need to live in the mystery. I need to... Not be so concerned about good, bad, black, white, rigid boxes of everything and celebrate some of the mystery that is God, some of the mystery that is Christ Jesus. Let my head not be so protective and defensive about what I believe that I can't learn or grow or find something new. So, looking to the the takeaway from the message, um, 
it's hard to label things as good, bad, right, or wrong, strictly good, bad, right, or wrong, when it's typically the wrong that's necessary to lead us to the light. So I want to soften my approach. I want to see the truth where it exists. I want to resist the urge to put everything in neat little tidy boxes of good, bad, right, wrong. You know, we're a, we're a society, and it, it seems like at this point in our society, we are really, uh, we're seeing a lot of the polar opposites going on, you know, in po- politics, if nowhere else. But, um, but we, we see a lot of that. I like, I like my truth in sound bites. I like my truth in, you know, in neat, easy fashion. Um, the problem is that life does not always present itself in neat, easy fashion, and truth does not always present itself in neat, easy fashion. So can I resist the urge to, to live there? Can I resist the urge to try and tidy up my version of truth and my version of life to the point where everything is in a rigidly constructed box of good, bad, right, wrong. So the takeaway, cut yourself some slack. It's through doing it wrong that we gain an appreciation for the right. Without failure, we wouldn't need God. Without failure, we wouldn't find God's grace because we wouldn't need it. And without failure, we wouldn't know humility because we'd be perfect. There's a scripture that I love, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're offering your gift before the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. I think there should be another parable, another verse right behind it that says... If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that there's something you haven't forgiven yourself for, first go and be reconciled to yourself. Then come and offer your gift. Cut yourself some slack. And then extend that slack to others. We are all in different stages of healthy and unhealthy. We're all on the path. We're all trying to find the truth. We're all trying to get somewhere new. None of us do it right, and none of us do it totally well on a daily basis. We all struggle. Colossians 3.13 says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you should forgive others. We all need God's grace and love, so forgive freely. Share yourself with others. This is not an individual journey. For the longest time, I thought my spirituality had everything to do with my relationship with God, the relationship between me and God. Today, I don't think my spirituality can be divorced from my relationship with others. That's part of the relationship. I am here to be part of the body, you know, 
Paul made this very clear in 1 Corinthians when he talked about the parts of the body and that we're all different parts of the body. We're fingers, we're toes, we're ears, we're nose, we're mouth, we're, we're different parts. And that just means that we all have a role to play. We all are here to participate. We're all here to be a part. We all, the body is incomplete if we are not contributing our part. So share yourself with others. The biggest thing that that I have learned is that my biggest mistakes in life, my biggest challenges in life, my biggest failures in life have led to my biggest opportunities for ministry. That's a crazy truth, but it's the truth. Someone, someone that's going through a divorce, who do you think they want to hear from? They want to hear from someone that's been through it before. Someone that's struggling with addiction. Who do they most want to talk to? Someone that's been through it before them. It doesn't matter what it is. Depression. Someone that struggles with depression. Who do they most want to talk to or hear from? Someone who's been through it before. So the critical thing for me is to recognize that while I can't celebrate my failures and I can't celebrate my shortcomings and I can't celebrate my sins and I can't celebrate my challenges, I can recognize that God uses all things together for good. I can recognize that they become my best opportunity to actually minister and touch someone else, to be a part of someone else's life. And that is what I'm here to do. That is what I'm called to do. So I don't run from these things. I don't hide from these things. I don't regret these things. I don't wish them away. I don't refuse to look at them. I may not celebrate them, but I don't refuse to look at them. And I recognize that they make me teachable, they make me humble, and they make me seeking of God's grace. So what is the balance point of our scale, what should be the balance point of my scale? Is it God? Is it the body of Christ? Is it humanity? One thing I'm pretty sure of is that I can't be the balance point of my scale all the time. If so, everything becomes about me. I become the center of my universe, and life gets very frustrating very quickly, and I have very little need for anyone else or their opinion or their wisdom or their teaching. I need to find a different balance point, or I need to be able to move between balance points and shift balance points as the situation requires. So as you walk through the week, you know, here's, here's where I'd end up. I want to be the city on the hill. I want to be the lamp on the lampstand. I want to be an attraction point for God. I want to be an encouragement. I want to be something that, that draws people like a moth to a flame. The reality is, it is only in, in moments of difficulty... It's only when things are going wrong. It's only in the face of the enemy that I have the opportunity to engage in life differently from others. 
when things are going well, when things are going right, it's easy to be happy. It's easy to be friendly. It's easy to be loving. It's easy to be accepting. It's easy to be, you know, everything positive. Any of us can do that. It is only when things are going sideways that I have the opportunity to show a different face to life, to show a different example to life, to live it differently from everyone else, to be an attraction point. So, you know, as we go through our weeks, let's look for an opportunity to be an attraction point. Let's look for an opportunity to do it differently. Let's look for an opportunity to, rather than feel the need to guard and protect and defend our position, to explore someone else's understanding of truth and see if it takes us someplace new, to, uh, to value the relationship more than the need to defend and uh, see what that, that does for our relationships. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for everyone here and our ability and our opportunity to come here, chase you, seek you, and try to understand you. We still see through a mirror darkly. We're still struggling to totally grasp and and capture you. But we want to. We want to know you as best we can. So lead us, show us, and help us find the way. And we thank you and love you and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.